0: X-Ray.
1: Welcome to the Beer Bona podcast. With me, remotely from Belgium, is Jeff Allworth, author of The Widmer Way, Secrets of Master Brewers, The Beer Bible, uh, and soon, <laughs> well, maybe not so soon, but while you're in, Bel- while, while you're in Belgium, uh, you'll, you're doing research for The Beer Bible Volume 2. Hi, Jeff. That's right.
0: Hey, Patrick. Uh, Very nice to talk to you from this great distance.
1: Yeah, miracle of modern technology. Look at us. Here we are together, virtually, if not uh, physically. And you are Patrick Emerson, professor of economics at Oregon State University. I am indeed. Uh, and I'm here alone in the studios of, the, of X-Ray FM, in the Falcon Art Building in North Portland, uh, talking to Jeff via uh, remote internet audio connection. Whose name I won't mention unless I'm paid. So I, I, that's I, right, and we're not being paid. I haven't so been paid, it. so nobody knows how we're talking. But <laughs> but Bill, uh, but Bill Gates. The, if you're the listening, audio seems <laughs> fine. Oh, you
0: really took <laughs> your hand there, didn't you?
1: Well, they got to know so so they can pay us.
0: <laughs> Bill, <laughs> Bill Bill
1: Gates. If you'd like to, us to mention your product, we're happy to. Talk.
0: Oh, anyway, uh, he's a Seattleite, so no doubt he's listening.
1: Yeah. Uh, you've been doing a really good job uh, keeping people up to date on your travels. So if you're interested in Jeff's travels, you can check out his blog, the Birvana blog. You can check his Twitter, Birvana, at Birvana. And you can check his Instagram, which is, I don't know, what, something, Jeff Allworth, Jeff, Birvana.
0: Jeff, yeah,
1: Jeff, Jeff. Allworth. Jeff. So lots of ways for you to follow along on his excellent adventure throughout uh, Europe. You're now in Belgium, but today we're going to talk about the country you just left, uh, my second home land, uh, England, by the way, I forgot to mention this last pod, but, uh, my sister who lives in London, uh, just had her first baby yesterday. Uh, oh, wow. So, uh, uh, so I give a little shout out to, um, baby Hazel, uh, who was born yesterday in London. I was going to ask, did, did she, did she name the new baby?
0: Patrick, but I guess um, I guess we have the answer to
1: that. Well, my birthday's tomorrow, and uh, I told her that she was under strict instruction to uh, to wait and have the baby on my birthday because it would be very auspicious that way. Uh, but apparently the baby wasn't as impressed with
0: their uncle's. Well, part. the least she could have done is uh, named the little girl Patrick. That would have been all right. Pat <laughs> A girl named Patrick. I
1: think yeah. uh, that's kind of like... Uh, yeah, I think there's a country song about that. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> uh, but the baby was actually uh, born on uh, my wife and my twentieth anniversary. Uh, as, oh well, as it turns out, so another auspicious date.
0: It, it turned out to be auspicious, man.
1: Yeah, so it, you were there at my wedding. That was twenty years ago. Can you believe it? I can because we're incredibly <laughs> that, old man. That's not the right answer. What are you talking about? <laughs> Oh, old yeah we are pretty old that's why we've got two youngsters in this in the booth uh, to help us with the technology uh, <laughs> i would like to stop for a moment and thank the freem family brewers for sponsoring this episode of the beer vana podcast you can find freem in hood river oregon or at freembeer.com that's p-f-r-i-e-m-b-e-e-r.com uh once again uh we reached out to freem uh looking for uh podcast sponsors podcast partners and um, they agreed to, to sponsor us, so we're really happy because it's a brewery that we uh, admire tremendously. So last week, we talked in detail about your visit to Harvey's Brewery in uh, Lewis, Sussex. Uh, we played your interview with Miles Jenner, the head brewer at Harvey's. Uh, but this week, I want to do something a little different. I wanted to take a more bird's eye view or a broader view of my other homeland uh, and tell me what's going on there beer-wise. It seems almost incredible to think that it's been eight plus years since you and I uh, had our jaunt through the UK together to do research for your first beer Bible. I wanted to spend um, a good portion of this pod just uh, talking about what's going on uh, in craft beer in England. I guess also yeah. also what's going on with, uh, with the uh, legacy breweries or the traditional breweries or whichever term you want to use. What's your up, my man? Well, what I was, was going to say is it sort of brings me to the news, and I'm kind of punting on the news. This is I, I, I realize how much I rely on you uh, for all this stuff. Uh, I kind of had a panic yesterday when I realized there was no script, there was no nothing, and you were not going to be there to save me when I walked in uh, because I'm mostly a passenger in this in this podcast. <laughs>
0: Uh, so I, was, I know, and I I prepare those damn scripts, and when I get one stinking error, I'm made to be <laughs> shamed by the likes of you instead of just rolling with the damn
1: Never thing. again. Never again shall I shame you. Now, now you
0: see. Now, now you I, see. Now I
1: realize all the work you do behind the scenes. <laughs> uh, I just show up and do my thing because it's so... I know. You, yeah. You've always just been the pretty face. I'm, now you realize. I'm like the sprinkle on top of the cupcake. <laughs>
0: I will forever call you Sprinkle.
1: Okay, so uh, that sort of brings me to the news. I punted on the news, and this is what I wanted to ask you about. So there's two big uh, things that uh, that I care about that have been in the news recently. Uh, One is just not even recently, but sort of it's been a thing for years now, is the state of cask beer in the UK. So I want to ask you about that. And the second bit of news um, was the the purchase of Fuller's Brewery by Asahi. I know that you've had some on the ground experience with the new Fuller's pubs. Uh, so I wanted to ask you about those two, uh, bits of news. Um, so, uh, you can take those in whatever order you wish.
0: Let's take the Asahi purchase first because there's sort of an interesting backstory there. Um, you and I are big Fuller's fans as the pod listeners know. Yes. Probably too well. So of course I was in, uh, London for Monday Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, 4 days. And most of that time was not in uh Fuller's pubs, but of course I had to pop in. So I popped into one called The Ship, and I London it turns out is inconceivably large. So I'm not really <laughs> sure where the where the ship is except that actually, the, I actually think the, I, the I I think I know the ship. It's, do you know where the Shard is?
1: Yes, exactly. I think it's south. It's south of the Thames, uh, okay. south of London Bridge. Not not okay. the tower. Not the Tower Bridge. Although also south of that too. But I know the Shard. Yeah. So,
0: and my but as you're as you're making an approach from one direction, the Shard is uh, just right there. So you you see the ship and then the, the shard is right behind it. Yeah, and my sister
1: works in the what they call the cheese grater building. I'm not even actually sure what, what the real name of it is.
0: <laughs> I know everybody talks about the gherkin too. I don't. It probably doesn't actually have a proper name at this point. I yeah, the cheese the no.
1: cheese grater is kind of a, a rectangle, but with with an angle, kind of. So it kind of looks like one of those upright cheese grater things. Sure. Anyway, that's sure. that's where she works. So she works in that same sort of general area as well. Anyway, so you visit the ship and
0: and I walked in to get my pineal end of London pride and. Boom! No London Pride. <sighs> it was out, which was it just inexcusable. Mind inexcusable. Exactly. It is. It is mind boggling. Almost inexcusable. It's
1: no. It's completely it's inexcusable.
0: That's. I, I had it. A- I had an exchange with uh, John Keeling on Twitter about this, where I tried to exonerate him and said, "Oh, surely this was uh, Asahi's fault." And he said, "No, nope, nope, that would have been the pub manager's fault. That is not Asahi's fault." <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. That's well, but yeah, that's good. The head brewer is defending the brewery. It's like that's not our problem, man. Pub, pub, <laughs> pub managers got to get the order in and get the beer to the pub. We can't. Yeah. We can't be in charge of that. No, I understand.
0: Well, I, I picked myself up, dusted myself up, gathered myself, and looked at what else they had. And it, had, it turned out they had ESB, so I wasn't in terrible straits. I ordered the ESB, um, and another outstanding was, beer. Yes, actually made from the same, uh, exactly the same. Yep. You go back to our very, 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 very first podcast. We talked about party out brewing. We talked about a solar, Wait, solar beer company. Was that, 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 that podcast was, number right, one? one? That was podcast number one wow it was like 20 minutes long we just blasted <laughs> through that sucker. we had no idea what we were doing
1: <laughs> but that was an awesome podcast man party guy party guy you gotta go you gotta so go uh
0: i picked up my esp and i started walking toward uh, a place to sit and i noticed that they had uh, a row of four keg beers including one asahi uh. which Kind of stood out. Oh. So then I went back and talked to the woman and uh, the publican, who was a woman, and said, "You know, what's going on? How is it? And how does it feel here for you? Uh, have you noticed any difference?" And she said, "Oh, you know what? No, except for they put in that uh, that tap after the takeover, but that's the only thing I've noticed. So from her perspective, no big change."
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you can't begrudge them putting their beer in in the pub, and I imagine that. Fuller, oh, of Fuller, not. Yeah, and I can And Fuller's beer is probably popping up hopefully in pubs in japan so
0: yeah and and i mean a fuller's pub is going to have uh more than one lager on and it might as well be asahi which is a nice lager uh, as opposed to kronenberg 1664 or whatever that thing is and a lot of really crappy beer and uh, a lot of crappy uh lager in london so yeah that's not a crappy lager so i got no beef there (laughs) um So, you know, it's early days. Who knows where they're going to end up. But it seemed like, aside from the uncertain, entirely disconnected situation of there being no uh, London Pride, it it, so far seems like there's not a whole lot to comment on. Though I will say, later on, um, oh, when would it have been? That was pretty early. That was probably like Tuesday that I made it to the the ship, and then a few days later, or a, that was probably just the next day actually now that I think about it, I was drinking with Mark Dredge, uh, who I was staying with. Mark Dredge is a beer writer who I hope I recorded a podcast with him. He's just finished a book on lager, the history of lager, and we had a wonderful discussion on this same session actually, uh, which I'm about to describe, and uh, he took me to, man, us. Uh, super classic old boozer uh, called the Pride of Spittlefields, uh, which is, Spittlefield is a part of town. Do you know that part of town? It's on Brick Lane. I do not. You know Yeah. Uh, it had carpeting, um, <laughs> which, uh, really classic pub, which it's got carpeting. Uh-huh. Um, it had a cat. Did uh, <laughs> it have a coal a, fire? Uh, <laughs> it had a fire, but it was, um, it was a really warm day, so they did, had not had the fire fired up. But yeah, um, maybe in the winter, it may well have coal burning in there. Yeah, it could be a coal fire. They had this funny little thing off to the side called Nancy's closet, uh, which had a bunch of cordial glasses hanging up there. And I don't even actually know what was going on with that whole <laughs> thing there. But it was one of those pubs that had a lot of little Chopskis hanging up. And uh, yep, yep, uh, they had they had pride on tap, and it was in. Cracking good form, and I was reminded uh what a spectacular pint that is and i I just it was it was fantastic. There were four old guys up at the bar chatting, and the woman uh another they're pretty good about hiring women as publicans in Fuller's. now think about it I was two for two um, she was salty and uh, <laughs> witty and just exactly the kind of experience you want, so uh, yeah. that turned out to be a real winner, yes yeah. so Tours finally came through in the end, and I got my pint of pride. Well,
1: to set up the second part, uh, it might be interesting to uh, to describe what we found in England eight years ago, which was a bunch of heritage brewers who were still sort of struggling to to hang on. Pubs were closing. cask beer was declining. Uh, there was this new breed of craft brewers inspired uh a lot of them inspired by the US, by American brewers. Um, and there were some collaborations going on. Um, but still, those kind of sort of new, kind of upstart craft brewers were few and far between, a f- a sort of a small segment of the of the larger beer market. Um, and so I'm wondering, uh, eight years on now, uh, how you'd uh, compare and contrast the, uh, the craft beer scene in, in England and how those heritage brewers are doing and what's the state of craft beer, of cask beer,
0: sorry. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of thinking on this. Um, it, it is, uh, things have definitely changed. And I have to say, I think they've changed for the better. I'm actually feeling a little bit more bullish on casks prospects. Um, maybe maybe no more bullish on the prospects of large cask makers. Um, I, after I was in London for four days, I went down to Lewis, uh, to talk to miles jenner and then i went up to uh, manchester where i was for four days and manchester was actually pretty revealing because it's a much smaller city it really reminds me a lot of portland yeah uh it was it's quirky there's a lot more it's very arty there are a lot more uh it, it, london is the, the the financial capital it's a little bit like new york city it's much more glossy um there are you know more it's more corporate it's less but that if you're a bohemian, you don't have the money to open a weird little quirky place in London. Right. Right. But in right. Manchester you do. Yes. So there's a lot of weird little cool quirky arty things, a lot more street art, a lot more, um, you know, if you, if you want gluten free food, you're a lot much more likely to find it in Manchester than in London, all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, so it was, it was actually, it kind of came into coherence when I got up to Manchester, what was happening. And, uh, I would go to a traditional cast pub and then I would go to one of these really cool uh, modern pubs whether they were a beer pub or there's you know there was i I didn't go into this place but I walked past a place that was a uh, a cocktail bar and Brazilian food restaurant oh and they had yeah and they had like really you know they if I were there were we gone.
1: <laughs> yeah
0: I kind of wanted to go I mean this uh, you, in one of these it, it, i I was trying to Pick off all the boxes I could. So I couldn't go to every cool place that I saw, but they had a big sign out front that um, had, you know, a a thing about Mezcal, uh, which is not Brazilian, but, you know, Mm -hmm. still cool and still on the cutting edge for for drinks. And uh, it just looked like it was going to be a fun place. And I looked in there and there was nobody over 40 years old in there, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I would walk into these traditional old pubs and I would see nobody under four years old. In fact, I was rarely, uh, I was almost always the youngest person in the pub. And, <laughs> and you're not a young and, man. <laughs> and, and I am not a young man. So, I mean, I'm, I was often the youngest man by 20 years in the pub. And, um, it, that was a little alarming. And it, and it yeah. occurred to me, and, yeah. and then, so that's the first two pieces. And then the third piece is, there are now these, these, these breweries that have been formed uh, in the last, you know, in, in, the, in the craft beer wave from as distant as the mid-90s all the way up to the last few years. And a lot of them are still doing, are, are, are doing cask. Either they, they started doing cask or they're coming to cask uh, after a while, or they started with cask, abandoned it, and are coming back to cask. And, and then I noticed, and I'll tell you this uh, last cool place I went, it's called Bundabust, mm-hmm. and it is a, uh, uh, an Indian restaurant.
1: <laughs> nice.
0: Yeah, Manchester is famous for what they call the Curry Mile um, of Indian restaurants, and this is kind of the the hippest of them all. Um, it's right in the Piccadilly Garden area, and boy, you would have loved it because it had <laughs> it had a lot of quirky, funny stuff. It really reminded me of uh, Bollywood theater. It had a lot of quirky, very Indian stuff in there. Uh-huh. Um, and I had a masala dosa, but they they had an amazing beer menu of I think uh, like a dozen taps. Which they had on a chalkboard, and they had lines drawn, permanent lines on the chalkboard. But then they added two more taps, so they they added another piece of the chalkboard. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> really amusing and quirky. And some of those were cask beers. Nice. And everybody in that place was also young. And I don't know that they were distinguishing between the cask and the 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 keg. You know, they were just there to drink good beer. Okay. And that was kind of when all of these three threads came together in my mind. And, and it occurred to me that I think one of the biggest problems Cascale has is that it is so associated with this incredibly nostalgic presentation in the old English pub. Right. Um, which for, for many young people and, and young people do go in there. Actually, I, I sort of I was I was exaggerating when I said there were no young people Um Periodically, I would see young people go in there, but I think they go in there nostalgically. I think they go in there for a pint, and then they go, you know, on, on their on their perambulations, and then they go off to another place. Right. Right. Um, but it, you know, they're not going in there every day. They're just going in there for a little blast of like, oh, this is like my granddad drank, and yeah. I want to go in there. Yeah, because in
1: eight years ago, uh, you know, the concern was that this sort of new breed of American style craft brewers uh, was leading beer in a different direction. Um, and these heritage, mm-hmm. heritage brewers are being uh, maybe left behind or certainly that young consumers weren't thinking of or consuming much of that old beer. So uh, what I've been interested in particularly is when these new craft brewers are actually doing cascales.
0: Yeah, I, they are doing cascales. And I think that they're, I, I don't think that the, Cascale itself is being seen by young, younger consumers as older or, or stodgy right so that's actually very hopeful exactly uh and and we're seeing we're seeing these uh old uh, you know the 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 old the best of the old traditional cask breweries are beginning to add in new products that have uh a more modern taste and we heard that with miles jenner i toured a tour de brewery called jw lee's in manchester and they have newer newer type, type beers and uh, Fuller's was, I think, on the cutting edge of that uh, to bring another brewery in. Yeah. So these, these breweries recognize that that's the case. But an interesting thing, and, and as an economist, I think, you know, I thought of you uh, when I was thinking all of this stuff through. Um, the whole operation of, of uh, English brewing has been hinged to the pub for centuries, really. And so breweries build up these giant pub estates so that they have right. a ready market for their beer. Yes. So they became wedded to them. And for hundreds of years, that was a really good thing. And now for the first time, it maybe seems like that whole model is kind of shooting them in the ass because, uh, they have hundreds of old English pubs and the young people don't seem no going to want to go into them. Right. And so they're closing and they're losing their,
1: their, uh, outlets.
0: Yeah. 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 And, and they and and it's hard to just offer a new product if you can't change the pub and of course you can't change the pub because so many people still resonate with it whether they're oldsters or tourists or or whatever it is.
1: Yeah. Yeah, interesting. But it's good to know. I mean it's it's hopeful I think that the that the two traditions might sort of find common ground and that these new craft brewers will sort of educate young beer drinkers in the joys of cask beer and maybe they'll rediscover those heritage brewers again
0: i think so i will tell you i went into uh I, when i had that tour with jw lee's uh which is a brewery we get her, uh, uh what, what it's not heritage now now that word's stuck in my head and i've um, <laughs> my, my not so clear right now um they a famous barley wine uh right. which we get here um uh Harvestdale, Harvestdale. Uh-huh. heritage harvest you see how my brain did that yeah. anyway um so i was familiar with that but i hadn't, hadn't actually ever had because i'd never been to manchester before i hadn't had their bitter or they do a, mar, a mild too which they now call a dark um and i was really curious to try those so i toured the brewery and that was great and um that's all great brewery tours we stopped with beer and we went across the street to this incredibly cool old pub uh so there's a plaque in the door as you walk in which said the oldest licensee of J.W. Lee's, which of course it would be because it's right across the brewery. (laughs) Um, And they poured what had to be the freshest pint of uh, Lee's bitter in the world. Um, You know, I'm sure they keep it incredibly fresh and man, it was a cracking pint. It was so good. Um, It was very soft. The, the Northern pint is lighter colored. Uh The one I had in Harvey's down in Lewis was, Quite a bit darker, right? Uh, you would almost call it a brown. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it actually had a similar hue, almost as dark as uh, Newcastle brown, mm-hmm. very, very uh, ruddy color. Um, these in Manchester are much, uh, much more like a kind of a traditional pale, ale, sort of a Sierra Nevada look, right? Um, that's just the Manchester way. They're drier, uh, which is also in, in the south, they're much sweeter and and, and fuller up right. there, they're drier, uh-huh. uh. But their yeast—they have three yeast strains at least. Uh, their yeast strain has three different yeast varieties in it or, uh, that they use. Um, which the new brewer who has just taken over was a guy who studied yeast in in uh, uh, brewing school, and his his master's thesis was to look at J.W. Lee's yeast. <laughs> and he found three separate strains in it. Two were flocculent, and one was not flocculent. Uh-huh. And Shockingly, all three stay in harmony and they don't have to do anything. They just pitch it and it just all works. But yeah. uh, This yeast produces um, very soft esters, uh, including one that has a little green apple, uh-huh. which is typically not considered favorable. It's often uh, uh, acid aldehyde or an aldehyde that comes from uh, improper fermentation and um, brewers are very sensitive to it. And I was kind of dancing around that. It really was working super well in the beer, but I didn't want to say green apple, because that's one of these words is like a red siren, you know, right, song right, 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 yeah. And yeah. <laughs> um and he and Tom said, Oh, it's like that aldehyde flavor. And I said, Yes, thank God you said it. And, and then we and then we talked about how um, it just super works with this beer. And he says, Yeah, it's not actually an aldehyde, it's not an imp- you know, it's not an improper fermentation. And the weird thing is it's the only beer that it does it in is the bitter. Um, But anyway, it was just, just, I know I've gone way too long on this one beer, but it was just an amazing pint. Um, And I, you know, I I wish that uh, everybody in the world who likes beer could have the experience of having been in that pub with me and tasted that beer. I don't care if you're, you know, a a young person who likes hazy ideas. I, I can't imagine anybody not liking that pint. And, and those are the moments that make me think, if people can be served pints in this shape that are this expertly brewed uh, casks will be around for a long time
1: yeah yeah and don't apologize I mean this is why this is what we beer enthusiasts live for at these moments where you have the perfect, yeah. the perfect pint in the perfect place at the perfect time and yeah uh, so last thing I want to ask you about um, when we're talking about your adventure is uh, again eight years ago the it brewery that we kept hearing about we never we never made it to Manchester last time was the marble brewery uh, yeah, so I wanted to ask you about that because it was one of those where we kept kicking ourselves like wow had we known maybe we would have made a special trip to Manchester, but uh, but you finally did so tell me about the Marble Brewery and uh, uh, and the Marble Arch pub
0: It's super cool. Uh, the Marble Arch it started so that it was a pub It was a pub first and it was a brewery which is a really interesting thing, right? The Marble the Marble Arch is this amazing old brewery in uh, or pub in in Manchester that was built by a, an architect of some renown, uh, and his name was, I think, Derbyshire, something like that. Uh-huh. Derbyshire. Derbyshire. Um, yes. Nah, sure. uh, and it was, and it was built as a really posh pub. So it had uh, uh, all. It's just very. Uh, that they, they used this this fired brick thing, so it's like glazed. It all looks right. like tile, but it's actually brick. And then up, up at the uh, ceiling line, it has all these really in fancy lettering. It says things like brandy, cordials, rum, <laughs> wine, and it was kind of all the things that you could get. You know, it was not supposed to just be a beer bar. Right. Um, and it was built uh, in the 1880s, and it's been there for a long, you know, ever ever the whole time. And, and it was actually called the Wellington, but... It has what is actually a granite arch in the front. Right. But, uh, the local punters thought it was marble, so they just started calling it the Marble Arch. I uh-huh. think it was built in 1888. <laughs> it wasn't until the 1950s that they finally abandoned calling it the Wellington and just gave up and called it the Marble Arch. Um, so that's the brewery. And in, in the 19, uh, early 1990s, uh, it came into the family of, uh, I, I'm not totally clear, and she didn't really want to talk about it, but. Um, <laughs> This woman now owns it. Her name is Jan Rogers, uh, and I think maybe her husband was involved then, but he's out of the picture now, and mm-hmm. she owns the pub herself, and in the uh, mid-1990s, she thought we should add a brewery, so they put a little tiny kit in the back of the brewery, and I went and looked at it, and it it, it is a... a, a they store vegetables in there now. It, you could, you <laughs> can't imagine how tiny it was. It's ridiculous. Um, they started the brewery and they just make cask ale, and that's still really their tradition. And I kind of didn't get this because I thought they had done cask tilting towards modern right. style. Yeah, uh, but they, and they do that. But the it's clear that their heart sings for cask, and they they actually have. Um, they have a few IPAs on now. No, they don't have any hazy IPAs. They refuse to do hazy IPAs. Uh, but they do have um, a West Coast IPA, mm-hmm. which is, um, I would not call it a particularly aggressive version. They have, they have an IPA that I think is one of their better-selling beers, which is an Earl Grey IPA. It's not a gimmick IPA. Right. Um, it's something that they, they sell routinely. And I, I sat at the bar for a while and watched people uh, order and I think about half the people order that uh, uh, Pearl Grey IPA, which is interesting. Interesting. Yeah. But they also have a classic bitter, which is just fantastic. And then uh, in last week's sherpa, I talked about the pint uh, that they have, which is another bitter, but it's a more modern bitter with. Did I talk about that? Uh, you talked that about. the it. really other one I recommended, right?
1: You talked about it at some point. I don't I remember whether okay. one of the ones you recommended, but yes.
0: Yeah. No, that was the one I recommended. Okay. Yeah. That, no, that was uh, sorry. Just Forgetting yes. Anyway, they use uh, New World hops in that, so it's um, oh yeah, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. They kind of yeah they sit on top of the uh, uh, the beer in a way that um, kind of old fuggles and and earthy goldings kind of you know burrow in. Um, but they were more they were they had uh, more uh, top notes. And in fact, I love that beer so much that before I left Manchester, the night before I left, I, got, I had a early flight the next day, so I. I went over back over to Marble Arch. That was my last pint. I went had a pint of pint at at uh, Marble. Nice. And the the cool thing is, I got to hang out the the guy. So I, I um uh I went over there and I was arranging with uh, Jan's son Joe, who is now the head brewer at the Marble Arch Brewery. Mm-hmm. So that's very cool. Um, it's a family affair. Yeah. And they're a uh it's a great Manchester. Oh, and. And that's where I learned about the, what the Manchester Pint was because we, of course, started out the bitter. First beer we had was a bitter. Right. And um, Reverend Nat Nat West was with me, and we went over there on Sunday, uh, which would have been last Sunday or two Sundays ago, as you listen to this podcast, uh, for Sunday roast. Which they. Oh, no, of course. And uh, it was a spectacular Sunday roast, and we had yep. started out with the bitter, um, and we were off to the races from there. So that was great. Uh, that sounds good. Well, I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna uh,
1: take away from your analysis of the state of uh, beer, craft beer, heritage beer in, in England uh, a hopeful note that uh,
0: the two. We, we sh- I should also mention at some point when we come back uh, some of the new stuff because I'm sure that the listeners are interested in that too. That's also quite interesting and a lot of cool stuff going on there.
1: Yeah, so I'm gonna take a a, a moment now to to break away. Uh, and kind of take you back to your current locale, which is Belgium. Uh, because, Yay. because I have this, uh, special, uh, beer from Freem, uh, our sponsorship partner. Uh, and it is an Oud Creek. Excellent. And I would like to know you're sitting in Belgium. Uh, this is a Belgian style beer. Uh, if you were having an Oud Creek in Belgium, what would you expect? What well, what is the it, flavor profile of No Creek Oud Creek? Describe it.
0: I need you should ask Patrick because uh, <laughs> for dinner tonight I had uh, a Girardin uh, Creek uh, and it was a, a it was in the category of Wood Creek. So it was actually a We did not plan cool this film. by the
1: way. That's pretty cool. <laughs> we didn't. I
0: know. This was pretty cool. <laughs> uh, uh, so Creek means cherry. Profe- professionals they, they would they have planned this, cherry. but We <laughs> Come on, man write uh, down of course we planned this weeks okay. in advance yeah creek is cherry um, okay creek means cherry so any beer can have creek in it um but there's this lambic tradition uh where uh you're you, you know you do spontaneous fermentation you do barreling barrel of that aging uh if you if you make certain types of lambic if you make a goose you have to have uh, different vintages in that blend right um so it's very it, it's strictly uh uh, defined so that people don't just uh, play, uh, trade on the lambic name and make crappy quick beers that are not very good. Right. Um, Ode Creek indicates a, a creek lambic, a lambic that has been made properly and fulfills all those uh, criteria, but is made with cherry. Yep. So the creek, the cherry goes in there. So this is not going to be one of those treacly cough syrup creeks that you can find Fairly routinely in in Belgium. Yes, yeah. Uh, for, fortunately, fewer now than there used to be, but um, it really distinguishes it. It's a legal category, Oude Creek. and what it means is you make a, a classic lambic, uh, let it dry out. You know, you go through the, all the stages, so it's it's a years long process. Then you add the fruit and you let it go through uh, secondary fermentation on the fruit, uh, and and it'll it'll vary depending on the fruit and the and the brewery, but some months. Uh, a, a further secondary fermentation, and so an Ode Creek will will not be sickly sweet. It will not have uh, a lot of residual sweetness in most cases, but it'll have an incredibly uh, uh, pure scent of uh, cherry uh-huh. and kind of the essence of cherry on the tongue. But it won't be cloying or, or overly sweet in any way. And you can tell that you you shouldn't it shouldn't you shouldn't have to ask the question was this a sweetened beer? You know, it should just right. taste uh, of the essence of cherry uh, along with all the complexity you get from a So that's what an Oude Creek is. Nice. So uh, uh,
1: I have here uh, Freem's Oude Creek. Uh, this gives me a moment to talk about uh, their uh, 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 beer club program. This is something, this is a kind of beer that you might expect if you joined uh, their beer beer club program. They call it the Freemsters Union Local 541. It's a bottle club where you get quarterly allotments of rare Freem beer. Uh, You get uh, six pairs at a time. That's 12 bottles each time. Uh, They do it quarterly, so you get it four times a year for a total of 48 bottles of beer. Uh, If you sign up now in 2019, you'll be a founding member. You get 10% off each allocation. You also get 10% off future beer uh, orders. Uh, from uh, 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 Freem. Um, So future in-house and online bottle purchases. Uh, uh, You can either pick it up at the Freem Brewery. You or a designated trustee can pick it up uh, at the Freem Brewery in Hood River, Oregon. Or you can have it shipped anywhere in Oregon. Uh, There's an extra fee for shipping just just to cover the cost of shipping. It's about 18 bucks or so. Uh, And so uh, what you get if you're a member of the beer club, is you get varietals, newer releases, and special styles uh, brewed with union members in mind. Um, This is one of those uh, beers you might expect, the kind of of beer you might expect to get in your beer club. Uh, This is a bottle of their Oud Creek. It's from their barrel aging program, which has become a big part of what they do. Uh, It comes in a beautiful bottle with a cage and a cork, uh, 375 milliliter uh, uh, bottle, and I'm gonna open it now. Uh, what's really cool about our partnership with Free Beer, though, is that uh, we can offer a special perk to our Beer Vana podcast listeners. Uh, if you email. And what uh,
0: special perk is that? Right?
1: <laughs> Thank you very much, Jeff. You're very silent there. I'm trying to do all my good marketing here.
0: Uh, I know. I'm through your bone.
1: This, this is the deal. The deal is this is a, a relatively new uh, beer club program they're doing, they're rolling it out. And right now, there's a wait list uh, for those who are interested in being beer club members uh, but you can jump the list and you can become an, a member immediately if you email union at freembeer.com that's union at p-f-r-i-e-m-b-e-e-r.com and mention the beervana podcast you'll get in response an exclusive invite to the club basically uh, i think it's a code that you can use to, to join the club immediately uh, file allocations will be ready very soon in uh, october 11th so act now and now, since you're in Belgium and you just had an Oud Creek, I'm going to do uh, a Hood River version of the Oud Creek. So this is from their barrel agent program. It's Lambic. I imagine they use they use local cherries since the beauty of being in Hood River is that there is a tremendous amount of fruit uh, grown there. So this, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So this has Van, Bing, and Royal Ann cherries, they say. It was, ah, there we go, aged in French, French oak barrels. Can you hear that? I can. Yeah. We don't actually have Edwina today because your connection makes it difficult. Uh, so I'm going to. Gotcha. Just you using you did mind. all right, though. Yeah, thank you. So the audio is working. Not getting any of the uh, fizz, but. Uh, uh, they age this in French oak barrels. Uh, they use uh, Brettanomyces and uh, lactic uh, to um, uh, ferment and sour. Uh, they also use uh, age check size hops with this, and uh, what else? Are they what else can I tell you? They use Gambrinus Canadian Pilsner malt, uh, rar is it unmalted wheat, and Mecca grade, uh, wiki up red wheat. In this, okay. So now I'm gonna. Uh, oh, right. Oh, so it's sort of you can tell you can tell the sourness on the nose, but it's got a
0: lovely, a lovely. You know, mouth. if you're feeling lonely, you could wave Will in. He might be able to review this with Uh
1: The doors. <laughs> uh will's coming in now you've I've, i was going to lock the door so he can't have any of this but <laughs> but here he comes i will
0: hi patrick hi Jack. Hey, Will.
1: all right so he wants he wants in he wants into this so yeah yeah it's got an amazing aroma of tart cherry mm. oh it's lovely dry it's not sweet at all
0: mm. there you go that's
1: classic yeah Mm, it's got really. It's a real uh, uh, mix of uh, sour on the tongue, but that uh, lovely cherry flavor and aroma. Wow. Mm. This, Will, one, huh? this one. This oh, one. Will's running away. What's your thoughts, Will? Yeah. What do you think?
0: It, it's less oaky than other Oud Creeks I've had, but it's still like yeah. dense with with cherry <laughs> and pretty That's opaque. Fun. Look, well. Actually, if you compare Patrick's earlier glass to my later glass, you can really see how yeasty and sedimenty it is at the bottom, which is great because that's all the delicious parts. (laughs) Well, yes. And in in Belgium, the the way uh, typically these beers are are never put on draft, uh, it's part of the production method that they're always secondary uh, fermented in the bottle, right? uh, Refermentation in the bottle. So uh, often when you go to a a, a cafe, they'll pour out. Uh, about three quarters of the bottle, and then put the rest there, or maybe a little bit more, and put the the, the bottle next to you. Uh-huh. And then if you if you if you wanted to decant it with the yeast in, your can, but you'll get a, that first one will always be very clear, and then you can do whatever you want. So, yeah, well, that's um, very. Will nice. will we'll win for the second pour. Yeah, so I took
1: about two thirds of the bottle in my pour, and it's 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 opaque, but it's much clearer. And then his yeah, his is uh, definitely yeah. much much more yeasty. Uh, yeah, this one is very dry and very tart, uh, but just lovely, saturated with cherries. Mm. So I can't be with you in physically in Belgium, but I can be with you in spirit and in uh, and in taste. <laughs> so uh, I
0: regret it. I, I would love to have tried that beer.
1: <laughs> that's right. It's gone now. <laughs> It'll be gone uh, by the time you get back. Uh, but Jeff, you can join. <laughs> you can join the Freemsters local. Uh, sorry, Freemsters Union Local 541. If you want, by emailing union at freembeer.com and mentioning the beer a podcast. Excellent. <laughs> okay. Uh, so thank you uh, very much, uh, Freembeer, for sending along this beer uh, for me to try. Now i got to go try to find my script again, figure out where we are. All right. So that was our little uh, Belgian interlude. Uh, and now we can get back uh, to the UK. You mentioned the new stuff.
0: Yeah, I, I should mention, I, I, you know, there's no way. There are 120 breweries in uh, London. I didn't go to all of them. I actually didn't go to any of them. I, in London, I mainly went to tap rooms so I could try to maximize the number of different uh, beers and breweries I could try. Right. Uh, and, you know, what What we're seeing at, in the main in London is, like, uh, very similar to what we're seeing in the United States and other places. When you go to Copenhagen, Mexico City, uh uh, it sounds like Tokyo, based on based on our uh, discussion uh, with Red and Nat. Mm-hmm. Um, you're finding people who are really interested in the way that Americans do craft beer. So they're they're doing things like IPAs and uh, you know saisons and uh, maybe a nice pilsner. Uh, they might have a barrel aging program. These things are are pretty typical uh, everywhere you go, and they're typical in London too. And there are breweries that are doing them better. There are breweries that are doing the worse. I went to one brewery with uh, Pete Brown, the writer, uh, a brewery that was near his house that was really terrible. I'm not going to mention their name. Um, they were doing a, a Pilsner with an ale yeast. Um, it was just not good. So there's there's not, you know, not every new brewery is knocking it out of the park, but um, there's more variety now in London than, than than there has been in a long time. There's a brewery called bohem or uh, bohem b-o-h-e-m and it was founded by two czech guys and they do czech lagers uh really credible excellent lagers um you know that's not something that would have existed uh, 10 years ago for sure yeah um there's a uh you know a a number of of cool hit new breweries that are doing uh interesting uh takes on uh the american oeuvre Everybody seems to want to do American hops. But the thing that I love about British brewers is they understand how to brew low alcohol beer really well. And that's true. It's just like an instinctive built-in thing they kind of get, whether they're, uh, you know, they've never, they're young guys who've never brewed beer before, but uh, launch a brewery and they make mostly American style beers, but somehow they can still make low alcohol beers. In an American mode, right? In a way that's so much better than American. (laughs) Uh, I was at yeah, it's amazing. I was at a brewery called um, uh, Brew by Numbers, and they did a 3.2 percent table beer that was uh, uh, dry hopped with citra, and it was so full bodied and full of flavor, and the citra was, you know, just really perfect harmony with everything and didn't overwhelm things. I mean, right. the thing that, that we, when we talked about was the difference between pale ales and session IPAs, we were saying, well, session IPAs are kind of hop heavy. They don't have enough body that support all those hops. Well, most session IPAs are 4.5%. I mean, give a British brewer 4.5% and they can, they can do basically anything. Um, they can do it with 3.5%. And, and it just, it's, it's impressive to me to see how much flavor they can put in these little tiny beers. Uh, in the same kind of mode that Americans love, with a lot of the saturated, juicy flavors. Yeah. So I, I was very impressed with all of that. Interesting how um, that that sort of
1: heritage, that that culture of brewing these lower alcohol beers, sort of pervades even in like, yeah modern. I love brewing. that.
0: Yeah. yeah, it was totally cool, and I think that many of them are brewing, you know, double IPAs and and pretty big boozy IPAs, but. It's clear that not everybody loves those beers. Um, They're they're just pretty heavy for the palate, the British palate. And I think whereas in in the United States, you'd see people go out for a a night uh, and they might, you know, if a brewery was making all those different styles credibly, an American brewer might never go below a full strength IPA in terms of that session. Um, It seems to me like the British drinkers are having uh, mostly low alcohol beers and they might have one boomer you know they're, they're not they're not doing whole sessions with the big ones those are like little specialty beers that they're having yeah
1: uh,
0: in, in, amid their session um a couple of interesting notes i kept seeing this uh i would i would walk in and i looked at tap list and i kept seeing these ddh in front of different beers uh-huh. and um you know when you look at a tap list there's often inscrutable notes and markings i think to the layman and and it, it was one of those moments that i had that i think many americans have when they walk in and they'll say you know uh uh kettle sour brett aged, um whatever 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 all these all these words that don't mean anything to the layman right so i was seeing i was seeing ddh all over the place and and then i was having them my own kind of Confused moment. Would you care to guess what DDH is? I Uh, bet I bet some of the listeners have already figured it out.
1: (laughs) Well, Will knows what is it. Something about dry hopping. Double dry hopping. Double dry hopping. Ah, Will got it. (laughs) Will always knows. (laughs) Will knows. Will knows so much more about beer than we do.
0: (sighs) (laughs) Totally. So that's a that's a big thing there. They're always talking about double Double dry dry hopping. hopping. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Which is kind of funny. So that's a weird thing. It doesn't, that's a meaningless term, and it's stupid, and they shouldn't be doing it, but they are because that's what beer do.
1: <laughs> of course, when it when it enters the the zeitgeist, then you can't get rid of it.
0: Exactly. Uh, yeah. All um, right. Well, I gotta go. turn. I gotta. Oh, turn, oh, go ahead. And then the last thing I'll just mention is um, because London is so crazy expensive. There's a huge number of breweries that have opened in railway arches, which oh, you yeah, know yeah. about, I'm sure, but yeah. I don't know about. And that was the other really fast. For a long time, thing. that was, was just storage lockers, right? Yeah, I guess so. These are, these are um, things called viaducts. So they're raised, ele- they're raised uh, train tracks, uh, probably 20 feet up yep. on average. And they have, they're made out of brick, old Victorian structures, yep. and they have arches yep. so, for structure. So those are pretty big arches. And at some point, some clever person looked at the price of real estate in London and thought, why don't we just rent these out? And I think they were originally storage, like you said. But more and more, they'd become uh, craft places and manufacturing places. And now you have uh, little communities being built up around uh, uh, these kind of on the outskirts of you know, what we would consider uh, more habitable neighborhoods. Right. And because they're cheap, breweries are getting in there, you know, just a million of them. And and one of the most famous runs of these is the Bermondsey Beer Mile, uh, where a whole bunch of uh, breweries have now opened up. I think something like 14 or something crazy, a big number. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's a weird quirk of London. You go out to these kind of marginal, semi-industrial, sometimes extremely industrial places, and you just kind of go. It's like bar hopping. You know, you walk... Uh, Sometimes they're next to each other. Sometimes you got to walk a few blocks and and uh, go brewery hopping. And and now people make a, a day of it and they go out and, and uh, do part of the beer mile or some some courageous people try to do the whole thing.
1: Yeah, that sounds great. And you have a nice blog post on that, by the way, and some good good photos of of these breweries and the arches. So uh, I recommend people checking that out. Absolutely. So I need to turn the conversation now to our. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna forgo the sherpa this week because uh, we have a bulging mailbag. Uh, it's and really, I talked a lot about
0: beer. And so you talked way. a
1: lot about beer, and I've lost track of time anyway. So who knows? Who cares? Uh, but uh, we have a bulging mailbag. Uh, thank you for all who reached out. Uh, not only is it bulging in terms of the number of people who wrote, but it's also bulging in terms of the the length of the. Uh, uh, the communication, so I'm going to apologize in advance. Uh, we don't have time to sort of go through everything that um, uh, the people have written, uh, and I'm going to sort of uh, uh, pick and choose a little bit and paraphrase, so uh, I hope that's okay with those who wrote in, but I want you to know that we appreciate your feedback and your comments. Uh, so I'm going to jump to the mailbag. Uh, before I do, by the way, I just want to mention one really quick thing, because I'm drinking this Ood Creek here, and uh, the thing... Uh, that's interesting about these um, these more sour and drier beers is that uh, they just they kind of make you want to pair them with food. If you know what I mean, it's kind of like red wine where they've got that really tannic that tannic snap that tannins that uh, sit on your on your tongue uh, and just pair so well with food that that this uh, Oud Creek you know I can imagine having uh, uh, especially something sort of rich and red meaty kind of uh, meal. So.
0: Um, yeah, I had mine with stump uh, tonight. I think that's what it's called stoop, something like that, which is a big sausage and uh, mashed potatoes and this kind of rich red gravy, Yeah, um, which is not from the meat. It's uh, like a, it's, it's almost a, it's a semi-sour. It's like a semi, uh, a sweet and sour kind of thing. Right. And, um, yeah, it worked really well with the creek. Yeah, it just, it, it just cleanses the palate so
1: nicely, especially when you've got that rich or creamy foods, I think. Um, anyway, I, yeah. I'm just sitting here. Maybe it's because it's past lunch and I'm hungry, but <laughs> that me think about it. Okay, so let's get to the mailbag. The first uh, piece of the mailbag that I want to talk about, and I'm going to do a lot of paraphrasing here, um, but Evan Danielson from Nashville, Tennessee reached out. Uh, with a really interesting uh, observation and comment. It was about the sort of cans versus bottle conversation that we had. Uh, and essentially, if I understand the, the, the question right, that um, uh, in the center of uh, Nashville, kind of the the main drag um, uh, on Broadway in Nashville is like where a lot of these honky-tonk bars are located, he says. Um, but what he says is that bartenders there prefer bottles because they're able to open bottles uh, much faster than cans and are able to serve many more drinks to customers. In other words, these are really high-volume places, places where bartenders are needing to to work really quickly. And I've never heard this before, that a a bottle is easier to work with as a bartender than a can. Uh, So what he was saying is that he has a friend who has a small uh, brewery. Um, uh, Let me uh, give a shout out to that brewery if i can uh find it Mm -mm 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 -mm. does he actually mention the the brewery in here uh anyway as we're talking uh you can tell me whether you've uh you've heard about this but basically they were deciding whether to switch over to a canning line instead of a bottling line but they haven't because they're able to make a lot of sales to these bars and these bars want bottles you ever hear that before no uh
0: that's fascinating
1: yeah so i'd be interested to know if anyone else out there has this experience uh i worked uh in a high volume uh so i had a had a had a brief but very illustrious in and, and renowned career in uh comedy nightclub management uh, when i was young that, that yeah that as, Je- as one does that jeff remembers well as one as one does <laughs> I, as one does i do yeah uh all of portland remembers that (laughs) 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 it is now called the harvey's comedy club but it was the last laugh when i was there uh and as part of my training as a manager they they put me in the kitchen for a week and they put me in the bar for a week and the bar is interesting in a comedy nightclub because you do this seating and then you have to get a million drinks out uh right away uh and uh so i'm trying to i'm trying to remember i don't think we um uh, we even had taps because taps are kind of slow for beer. I think it was all bottles, but there were no cans back then. so I'm trying to imagine you know grabbing a can and versus a, a bottle i I, I kind of see it one one thing that I suppose you can do with a bottle is just you just pop the bottle on the counter. I don't know if bars are um, are reluctant to just give a person a can to drink uh, rather than a bottle uh, but that might be one anyway but i don't really have a a big comment but it's interesting the economics of it uh in that this small brewery uh didn't want to change over to cans because they've got this built-in demand for bottles
0: yeah totally
1: yeah so i'm actually gonna gonna use that as a jumping off point because um we got another uh, less of a question and more of a comment uh but from alistair scriven uh who i don't think gave his location so um not exactly sure where, uh, but he was interested. The internet. In the, the internet, yeah, uh, but it sounds like he's local uh, to us. Uh, and he says this: "I'd be interested in both of your perspectives on the new bottling recycling program here in Portland, and supported by the state." Jürgen Noller of Byron Brewing in Montana uh, gave an interesting interview on a uh, on the Portland Beer Broad uh, podcast, uh, and, and claimed that recycling. Bottles by washing is much more energy efficient and cost effective. Such, so much so that they are collecting bottles in Oregon and trucking the bottles to be washed in Montana, and then shipped back for refilling. Uh, uh, he said this goes counter to my perspective when it came to cans. We actually heard something about this from uh, Van Havig uh, at Gigantic Brewing when we had him in the studio uh, quite recently, uh, who made the same claim that that washing that reusing bottles and washing them is uh uh from a from a, a conservation standpoint uh beats anything else but so much so that you can truck them to Montana that's interesting
0: yeah yeah uh bayern actually is doing the bottle washing for the state of oregon right now uh, at the state of oregon they launched their project with the intention of buying one of those bottle washers and i think a much bigger one than bayern has uh, but it's a very expensive project and they so they're having they're having the bottle shipped all the way to Missoula, um, and even doing that, uh, it's still uh, cost effective because you have to think of the whole. Uh, for every single bottle that you have uh, that you're buying, there's a big carbon footprint as those things are shipped themselves, and uh, there's yeah, there's a lot of there. There's more goes into the uh, the production of a, a, a bottle. In terms of the greenhouse effect, than we would, or the you know the the carbon footprint than we would expect. Yeah,
1: and I'm all for it. I just I'll I'll just say that I'm a little bit skeptical. It seems like an entire culture shift. Like if you go to Germany, then this happens regularly. Like this is what they do. You know, you buy a crate of beer in this big heavy plastic crate, and you you pour them out, and you put them right back in the crate, and you take it back to the to the store, it works great, but it requires this entire infrastructure. Like, this is how you buy beer. And you find it even, like, in convenience stores. When I was in Berlin, I walked into this convenience store, and there the crates were stacked up, uh, which takes a lot of space. So it's it's a it's a pretty what? big culture. Yeah, but shift. in
0: Oregon, we already have that infrastructure, and that's the genius, because we already have the bottle bill. So we're, so we're already collecting back those bottles. And what happens now is, instead of all going to the same place, they're sorting. So the bottles come back, the refillables are sorted out, and those go to Missoula. Yeah. In the future they'll go to the uh, and, yeah, and that I don't know.
1: That infrastructure made, is in place. But I'm talking about the in store yeah. infrastructure where you have the the, the the crate stacked up and you just grab a crate. And and I also think one last comment I'll just make on that is I wonder how much uh, that also has to do with the fact that the variety that you find in these German stores is less. Like uh, you know, you go and there's four, five, six maybe major beers that you can buy in the crates and that's about it and that's pretty much the whole space they've got and here we've got you know 162 breweries uh all competing for this shelf space so uh i hope it happens but it's it's gonna be an interesting uh uh experience to see how much culture matters and how much economics matters and and all that yeah well uh,
0: there is another model i'm in Belgium right now and they also have a, a total uh ubiquitous refillable program and it is not like uh, Germany. So they don't have the crate system. It's it's much more like Oregon's and it's even possible for you to have your own bottles, which somehow get sorted. So like Orval's bottles, those little skillet bottles, those are totally refillable. And in Belgium, you'll find them really kind of old and thrashed, you know, many, many turns. So they clearly have been reused many times. Um, and uh, I haven't gotten into the, I don't, I'm not exactly sure how that sorting happens, but um it, it happens and the, thing, the 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 big difference in both germany and uh belgium up uh, as opposed to the united states is that in those countries the brewery itself is responsible for washing the bottles so the bottles come back to the brewery and then they have a, an expensive piece of equipment that washes the bottle before it goes into the bottle filling
1: yeah so uh yeah well we'll see i'm i'm surprised that that's true that that shipping them back to montana is is still more energy efficient. It just tells you how much energy, I guess, it takes to melt down a bottle and re and remake it. I suppose, right? I think
0: so, and I'm sure that you know they're trying to. They're really trying to get the project launched, and it's probably not especially efficient doing it this way. So I'm I'm sure that they're really trying to expedite the process of getting to that that new bottle wash that'll be in Portland or somewhere in Oregon. Yeah.
1: Okay, and the next uh, piece of mailbag I'm going to talk about is.
0: Hello. Yes. Did I lose you?
1: Okay. Sorry. No. Will Will was talking my ear. We'll cut this bit out. Or will will cut this bit hey. out. It's his fault. I'm anyway. in a, I'm, he's gotta I he's got to edit. So it's him. his fault anyway. Yeah. Okay. So this will be the last one. There's a couple of others, but they're mostly comments anyway. Um, uh, yeah. So let's let's make this our last question. And I'll do the outro. He's just he's okay. he's on top of the time. I'm not. Okay.
0: Okay. Good. Ready? Well, I'll be. I will not flatter.
1: Go. Okay. And the last bit of it, mailbag. There's. There's more, and hopefully we'll get to it in future episodes. But uh, the last one I'll talk about today is from Ben Emrick, who is actually a brewer uh, brewing beer in Japan. So this is relevant to our recent podcast episode about Japanese beer. In fact, we even mentioned uh, Japanese beer today because we're talking about uh, Asahi and uh, Fuller's. Uh, but he actually has a lot of really interesting information, uh, that follows up of our podcast, uh, in his letter. And I'm just going to pick out one because I don't have time to do it all. Uh, but I thought this was interesting. So we talked about, uh, bars, lo- local bars, how easy it is to access the market. If you're a new brewery or a craft brewery in Japan and, uh, um, uh, what we were talking about on the part of the time was sort of how small these places are and, and how difficult it is for them. And what he says is, uh, a lot of bars and izi, izakayas, especially local ones, don't have tap systems installed. Uh, what they have uh, are beer servers, which are basically fancy jockey boxes. These servers can be expensive, so many bars get them from Kira and Asahi, and etc. Uh, and part of their contract with the brewery is that uh, when they get them, they're not allowed to put any other beer on that tap. Uh, so, if uh, of I, course. Yeah, so if I had a bar and got a beer server from Asahi and decided I wanted to sell K- Kirin instead, I would have to return the ser- server to Asahi and arrange to get Kirin. Uh, that makes it tough for us small breweries to sell because no one can put our beer on tap unless they have a tap system installed or unless we provide a beer server f- for them for our beer, which, as he mentioned, is very expensive. That's why you'll see mm-hmm. bottles from craft breweries at local restaurants, uh, but you will almost never see them on tap. Uh Fascinating. Yeah. Great comment. yeah, it is a great comment. And this is a way in which, like even if a place isn't like particularly tied, just the just the physical infrastructure and the and the economics sort of create almost a tied relationship because once you've got those beer servers installed, then you're basically sort of tied into this one this this one brewery, and it makes market penetration hard. Uh, right. I, al- I I always reference Brazil just because it's the one place I've, I've seen where tied relationships are the norm. And you just see how difficult it
0: is uh, to get craft beer out there uh, in bars and restaurants. Yeah, yeah, even if it were just uh, the Kirin and the uh, example that you talked about, you, you've mentioned uh, the concept of low walls, is that what you call it? Um, where yeah, just even a small barrier will stop somebody from doing something. And I bet just switching between two large companies is rare just because it's too much of a hassle.
1: Yeah, yeah. I
0: mean, these yeah
1: very small switching costs can still create this sort of path dependence, you might consider it. Um, So, yeah. So, uh, Ben has many other things. Maybe in a future pod we can talk about a few other things that he mentions about uh, Japanese beer. Um, But uh, uh, thanks, uh, uh, Ben, for reaching out. Thanks, Alistair, for reaching out. And uh, thank to Evan Danielson uh, for reaching out. Uh, So, uh, we should wrap up the pod. Uh, As always, we'd like to uh, thank Our writers, uh, of uh, uh, mailbag writers, but also um, thank you for listening to the podcast. Uh, We encourage you to uh, uh, rate us, review us, and subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also find us on SoundCloud and Stitcher. Uh, Those things help other listeners uh, find us and uh, broaden our reach, which uh, we appreciate. Yeah, Uh, do that. Thank you. Yeah, uh, we'd also like to extend a, a thank you, as always, uh, now to Freem Family Brewers for being partners and sponsoring this episode of the Beervana podcast. Uh, please visit them when you're in Hood River, Oregon. Uh, there's a lot of great beer, and, and they're some of the best uh, in Hood River. And you can visit them at freembeer.com. It's P-F-R-I-E-M-B-E-E-R.com. com. Uh, okay, so if you would like to contribute to our mailbag, and I hope you will, You can contact us uh, uh, either by email. Jeff at Birvana Blog is the best place to contact us that way. Uh, You can go to the Birvana Blog Facebook page and leave a comment. Uh, You can also uh, uh, contact us through our Twitter feeds. Jeff uh, tweets at Birvana and I tweet at uh, Biranomics. I think that about covers it. So Jeff, where are you off to next?
0: I will be in Belgium um, for one week. And I just got here, so uh, most of that week is still left. Okay. Then I go off to Vienna, Krakow, Poland, Vilnius, Lithuania, and uh, finish up in Berlin, Germany before coming home on October 9th. Awesome.
1: So, uh, listeners, look for future pods uh, where we talk about uh, the uh, amazing uh, attributes of Lithuanian beer.
0: Which is actually very cool. I'm actually, yeah. No, I'm, really, I'm
1: really interested because these are some of the places that uh, you're visiting now that you wouldn't normally think of. So it's going to be uh, pretty exciting to talk to you about it. So uh, safe travels, Jeff. Uh, Thank you. I envy you, but at the same time, I know how exhausting this all is. So um, keep up the, uh, the good work and uh, keep, your Thank stamina, you. keep your stamina going. Make sure you you get rest and food in between all the beer you're drinking.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to do that. I <laughs> I uh, have to be smart. Yeah. Okay. So I'll, I'll I'll take care. You take care. And uh, you know I I I know it's back to the the millstone with you. I, I I suspect you're back in school, which is always a shock to you every after the, the uh, summer. So yeah, uh, we're we're on know, quarters. They're so. up under that weight.
1: We're on quarters. So next week. Well, actually, this is this week yeah, for this pod. It's this week. Yeah, we started week, we yeah. started classes again. So I'm back. <laughs> I'm 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 back at it. All right, well, uh, in honor of your Belgian bed for tonight, I have uh, the Oud Creek from Freem, uh, their barrel-aged uh, creek. Uh, it's delightful. Um, I'm almost done with it, but I still have enough to cheers you with. So uh, cheers, Jeff. Cheers, Patrick. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I like
0: it. All right, bye. Bye. X-ray. X-ray.